Hey, it's Anna Sale, and I want to thank you for listening to Death, Sex, and Money, where I explore the big questions and hard choices that are often left out of polite conversation. You can hear new episodes ad-free every week on Amazon Music, where you can find Death, Sex, and Money and all of your Slate favorites without the ads. I want to thank you for listening and for all your support as we at Death, Sex, and Money have made our move to Slate. Your stories, voice memos, and emails have meant so much to the team. As part of this transition, there's a new way to support our show financially at Slate, our new home. And you'll get something special in return. Subscribe to Slate Plus, and you'll not only support our work on death, sex, and money, you'll get access to new benefits, including listening to us and all of the other great shows Slate makes, like Slow Burn and Dakota Ring, without any ads or sponsor breaks. To subscribe, just click Try Free at the top of the Death, Sex, and Money show page on Apple Podcasts or visit slate.com slash DSM plus to get access wherever you listen. Thanks. It's totally shame. Uh-huh. Like, it's just something that was always in me that goes, oh, I guess a bad thing should probably happen to me. Like, I didn't learn it later. Just felt weirdly true. I mean... Like, a large part of wanting to really hold that up to the light has informed a lot of my choices since, is what a weird response. This is Death, Sex, and Money. The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot and need to talk about more. I'm Anna Sale. Kate Bowler is a best-selling author, a professor of American religion at Duke, and host of the podcast Everything Happens. She's also a survivor of stage 4 colon cancer, and she lives with chronic pain. When I wake up in the morning, I have a few minutes before I can tell how much pain I'm in. So the first question is always, do you take pain meds before it starts to get bad? How long? What's that runway? Uh-huh. Basically, I feel like I'm trying to just like scaffold my body as much as possible to get through a day. So I'm like kind of riding right on the edge of what I can do. Oh, so it's like when you're thinking about, because you, you won't know how it's going to show up. So you are like, you treat with anticipation looking ahead at your schedule and what the, what the demands on your yes. body are going to be. I'll like bring a set of props to a play that I'm going to have to act out. <laughs> and I'm not sure when I, if, I, if my props will be enough. Kate is also incredibly industrious. She works and keeps working as a way of coping. Part of this comes from growing up in a largely Mennonite community in Canada and being the child of two academics. And then it was reinforced when she was diagnosed with a joint laxity disorder when she was in her grad school in her 20s. Figuring out ways to keep working through her pain helped her feel like there was something she had control over. The most generous version is I treat myself like a behavioral experiment. But it's a terrible experiment because when I, if I do something slightly wrong, as in wrong as in creates more pain, it can be a five to seven day cycle of just like, uh, I just have one unbelievably solid cry. Uh, a day because I can't, because I just, the performance kind of gets to the edge of what I can do. And then I'm like, okay, and we're back. <laughs> and then I'm back in the game. Uh-huh. And um, who who in your life besides you knows 
the level of pain that you're experiencing day to day? Does anybody? Mm. I, I try to tell my friends. Uh, I have, improbably, I have three best friends. I just, uh, I've, I've often not lived in the place where I had my deepest friendship. So I'm on the phone or, you know, that kind of thing a lot. And I have, so I, I try hard to, to tell someone who loves me that much semi-regularly how much pain I'm in. But the truth is I find it to be such a boring topic for just like I'm here how boring it is. Mm-hmm. Like right now, Anna, I already want to apologize <laughs> to you. I want to be like, look, I know, I know you asked me but this is actually extremely boring. I'm not bored, just so you know, but I... <laughs> well, I think you're bored by no one, I think, but also... I think that that feeling of boredom, like when I, I relate to that because when I hear myself complaining or saying something that is I'm having difficulty with in a way that is the same words I've used before and it suggests that this is an unrelenting, unresolvable thing, I feel so sick of myself. Is that what you mean by boring? <laughs> like... Can we just well, talk yeah, about I like something that. else? It's a good idea. <laughs> yes, this is not new information to me. is a is a solid argument for what feels boring. I think um, it feels like complaining. I, I felt this way with cancer too. Is just the like intractability of these problems. Like if if I thought it was going to end, whoa, I'd be, I'd get in the weeds of it. But this, it feels like a forever problem. Do you remember? Did you have have this joint condition? Was there a way that it manifested as a kid? Did it did it make you feel like not athletic or not excited about kind of stretching and using your body in in kind of kid ways? Maybe I just because since I was little, I was such an I was such a feeler and would disappear into books easily. But I never really thought about my body very much in time and space, and that that made it harder and harder when I started being someone who was in pain regularly because it was a lot. I think it took me a lot longer to notice I was in pain. Mm-hmm. Did, um, do you remember grownups using the word clumsy about you? I was very uncoordinated, yes. I remember when I couldn't make time in the track and field events that we did as an elementary school and then they eventually just, like, left one person behind with the timer. <laughs> and I was like, oh, it feels like, feels like I was supposed to have finished something by now. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, it makes me, my kid, my older kid is in elementary school, and, and I'm aware of, like, it seems like the first way that social hierarchy is established in elementary school is with, like, athleticism. And then there's, it's like the sorting of, like, personality. And, and that, like... You didn't know that your body worked differently. You just knew that you sort of, the word clumsy got thrown around and you, and you liked yes. reading books. Yeah. Let me just do something I'm good at where I'm seated and alone. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> exactly. And um, when did you start attending church regularly? Um, I was baptized in the United Church of Canada. And I think I was going to church pretty regularly. I can always... I can mostly track my church participation by what animal I was in the nativity play every year. <laughs> so whether I graduated from a sheep to a shepherd, from a shepherd to an angel. Uh, so yeah, I was, I've been going to church in one form or another all my life. Do you, do you have a, like, when you think back about what you think you picked up 
as a as a girl about um like the body and your body and the relationship to living in a body like what do you what do you think were the first lessons that you picked up there well i didn't learn that my body as a girl and not yet a woman i only learned that it was probably a bad and embarrassing thing something that needed double tank tops something that needed uh-huh. Um, mod- modesty bathing suits when I first uh, started attending a Mennonite Bible camp that was heavily influenced by evangelicalism. And before that, my body was pretty neutral. I mean, going to a largely Mennonite church, Mennonites are these, as I'm sure you know, wonderfully, they love pacifism and simplicity and uh, fixing things. I, my Mennonite relatives have been visiting lately, so you cannot separate me from amateur electrical work or building a shelf. I mean, the things I've been doing lately are very dangerous. Uh, but there was—you um, were mostly just—I I remember largely being good because I was like everybody else. And then I went to the summer camp where I got a very strict list of rules for what how, how girls were to dress— and I looked at, I remember circling items with great uh, interest <laughs> and concern. <laughs> Wait, spaghetti straps? <laughs> uh, like they weren't allowed, spaghetti straps. Yes. Okay. And and all the talk about um, that men are visual and therefore that my body was something that had to be um, hidden and policed in case it would be overwhelming uh, for for boys was was something I learned. So it was quite, um, I didn't realize that spiritual authority and bodily embarrassment were going to come, um, were, were going to be introduced to me. There was the sense of a thousand small indications that, that I was unacceptable in some way. A little bit too loud, um, too unselfconscious. Uh, too quick to give an opinion, if you can <laughs> imagine. <laughs> and I remember this very sweet, uh, enormous man who was the camp director, Merv. And oh. uh, when I was 16, I sat him down. <laughs> he was so nice to tolerate that. But I was like, I sat him down to have all kinds of questions about the limits of my spiritual authority. I said, look, I've been hearing things about all kinds of things I'm not allowed to do, and I have a lot of questions about you and your relationship with your wife, who was the um, was the camp nurse. And I was like, is she allowed to operate outside of your authority? Does she have to ask for your permission? And I wasn't being a dick. I was like, what are the boundaries on this thing? <laughs> and and I, 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 left, I left with... Um, a sense that I would be allowed to do anything if it was indirect. But I felt the really deep embarrassment of not really knowing, just not really knowing enough about my body, about gender rules, about what was okay, whether I should feel embarrassed all the time. I was dating what who's now my husband, who had that Bible camp. And we, I mean, we were taken aside for hand-holding in the car ride up on <laughs> to Bible camp. I mean, stuff that, like, I, is, is, is insane to me now. It just, but I, I felt like, 
I feel like a man. I must be a really dangerous person if there's this much attention being paid. Mm. And like, where it sounds like what you're describing is this sense of like really wanting someone to be clear about what the rules were with you because you were picking up on things and you were like, and and uh, that you were doing wrong, but it wasn't it wasn't as explicit as. for you to sort of like evaluate is that is that what you're describing it just this like yeah 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 i think when i moved from being an early teenager like through the teenage years i just felt deeply confused about whether my yeah what i was allowed to be proud of like you're certainly not allowed to be pretty. <laughs> it's a funny thing to say, but no Mennonite is going to be like, congratulations, you're very pretty. <laughs> or like, because you're supposed to cultivate humility. And I was like, well, gosh, I'm like, looking at Seventeen Magazine, I really do want to be pretty. Mm-hmm. And then I was in this religious environment where I wanted so much to belong. But uh, in that version, I couldn't be that smart. I couldn't do what I like doing, which is to have spiritual opinions about everything, which is now my job. So good luck them. Um, but I felt sort of like a lot of desire and a lot of n- confusion about where, what, whether, whether there was any acceptable direction for it to go in. And how did you sort that out with your boyfriend at the time? Like, did you, when you wanted to kiss each other, what happened? How would you talk about it? We both followed all the rules. We were, oh man, we loved rules. We just loved them, you know. (laughs) The rules Kate and her boyfriend were trying to follow were from books written by Dr. James Dobson, the founder of the evangelical Christian group Focus on the Family. All the Dr. Dobson books about, uh, there are these evangelical instruction manuals that were popular in the, well, really popular in the 90s. And, uh, but that had been a growing body of literature, frankly, since 1970s. And uh, out of Colorado Springs, and it somehow made its way to these subcultures in Manitoba. And so everybody's parent had a book. I'll never forget looking at a list, being given a list uh, that said, from my um, Christian high school group, that said like, um, eye contact, fine. <laughs> it's like, we had a lot of work to do if we're going to from eye contact. <laughs> and then it went to, like, the line. Now, uh, the line was peck kissing. And underneath the line, oh, boy, I learned a lot of things. <laughs> about. I was like, mouth to what? <laughs> no one even told me about that. <laughs> so Tobin and I, my now husband, we just, like, we both remember all the lists. So just as a joke, um, for our anniversary this last year, you know, you can order these cute little maps that have um, like a little heart over like a black and white map of a place. So it looks decorative. I I got a map of where we went to high school, where we were dating and obviously had all these conflicted sexual experiences. And I just put a heart over our high school and then I put under the caption, hugged too long. <laughs> because that was exactly <laughs> what we were worried about. Oh, so a lot of hugging. Wait, I want to go back so to much hugging. when you think about like what you both really liked about 
rules? Like what, what felt good about that? Mm-hmm. I think we felt like we were being really responsible. I mean, by high school, I was really invested in my faith and I and it seemed like a very like totalizing view. I am I am this person in all parts of my life. I think what was frustrating about that though is humility or or a modesty, sexual modesty in dating felt a lot like humility, which is also a Mennonite virtue, good for me, but it felt a lot like embarrassment and shame. And it didn't have to. I mean, I I was really made fun of a lot for throughout my, gosh, I, I did not enjoy uh, being a teenager that much. So by the, I just was trying to get through it all with the right number of rules and just try to keep a a rough version of myself kind of intact. I'm not, it's funny because I'm not unhappy with the choices I made, but it, it when I look back, I think um, how very, um, how very innocent I was, which is to say making choices without knowledge. Honestly, Anna, this is partly why I'm like stumbling around talking to you is because I spent so <laughs> Most of my life being like, can we just not talk about sex and drinking? And I could just tell dumb stories at this party. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry to bring back those high school feelings. No, no, no. <laughs> Everything's great. It's great. I had a great time. I loved it. And it was wonderful. Thank you. Kate and her boyfriend Tobin stayed together through college. And they married a few months after she graduated. She was 22. Honestly, I was so, I was really relieved to get married. It was so nice to have a, f- a really steadying friend and, you know, also a person I thought was very hot, but like, it was really nice to have someone to feel like, okay, we can grow up together. I- we got this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like a teammate. Yeah. But, um, I really liked, it felt like the, it felt like then my life was my own in a way. I, and I almost immediately I started making choices that no one would have agreed with. I didn't take my husband's last name, which was not a popular choice. And then and about a year later, moved away so I could go to an elite school and be fancy in a way I felt like I had to apologize for before. Uh-huh. Was it important to you to wait to be married before you had sex? Yeah. Yeah. I'm not, I wasn't the person who, like, handed out pamphlets about it. But yeah, it was. I didn't. I, it's I'm not to be like, and do you regret it? But I really, I really don't regret it. Uh, but it's certainly like a, it's a high cost proposition. What do you mean by that? Hmm. Well, there's not a version in which my 22 year old self had like other options. But I was just uh, had known other options. But I was. I was pretty happy with my choice, and I kind of stayed happy about it. Coming up, how Kate made sense of a series of health challenges, including when she was diagnosed with cancer at 35. There was no reason why I should have thought that I had cancer. There's no cancer in my family. But there was a, um, oh, I've done this before. Oh, I've been here before. Oh, I've let go before. 
that and simultaneously felt like weirdly felt exactly like shame. This episode is brought to you by Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he will chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. After Kate Bowler got married, she went to Divinity School at Yale and started a Ph.D. program at Duke University. Initially, she and her husband felt no rush to become parents. I was pretty indifferent mm-hmm. <laughs> about it. Mm-hmm. I, I was like, well, I really, I really like my academic work. And I like, I really enjoy the life I have. I can imagine doing a million more interesting things. But uh, I didn't want to miss the window on having on on having a child. The second I started imagining being able to have a kid, then almost immediately we were struggling with infertility. Mm-hmm. I remember a similar, um, like f- from all of my twenties when I was in, when I was married for the first time. I was very clear I wasn't ready to become a parent. And then I remember when I was trying to get pregnant in my mid thirties. I remember just the shock of like. I spent all this time and energy trying not to get pregnant, and now (laughs) now I'm not in control of when I get pregnant. And I was pissed. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Yes. That's such a good description. It uh, It was already two years. In my late 20s, I... I was... I was my brain pauses before saying this sentence because it sounds so dramatic, but I lost use of my arms for a couple years at the end of my twenties, and so I I had already started feeling like my body was not exactly something I was going to get a lot of say over. Uh huh. Um, and when you say you lost the use of your arms, like what what happened? Like what on a day where your arms we're not cooperating. How did they work? In my mind, it happened so fast. Uh, it felt like just one day I was this typey, prodigious person, and the next I had these limp arms. But started with like a strong kind of tingling, and then it became shooting pain down my arms. And then they lost most sort of power. So it was like having something that only had a really limited, a battery with super limited charge. There were times when I couldn't, like, turn a doorknob. Shaking people's hands was unbelievably awkward. (laughs) Because I was like, ow, 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 (laughs) please, please. Um, Yeah, on the worst days, I couldn't, I couldn't make dinner. I couldn't wash my hair. 
And I couldn't work except with voice dictation, which at the time was like all that Dragonsoft program where you yell, (laughs) hello, comma, and it just comes out like hell, space, O, space. (laughs) How long did it take you to get information about what was happening? Oh, it was years. I I think I went to, I mean, if you count all the people who interview you on the way in, these, you know, the PA, the other doctor, the other doctor, and then finally when they let you see the person that you signed up for, I think I saw maybe 100 people. I went to student health, and they said it must be a yoga injury. And I thought, I don't think I'm athletic enough for for that diagnosis. And then they said, well, maybe maybe it's because uh, eyes flitting down to my chest. You have a very large <laughs> pantomiming breasts on the, the doctor's chest. And I was like, this is not, this can't possibly be an official diagnosis. Uh, and then I was diagnosed with thoracic outlet syndrome, which is what they diagnose baseball players with, with a sort of over a pitching arm that, and wanted to take out my top rib. And then eventually they just, I agreed to a surgery where they would cut through the tendons in my arm. So I caught this huge long scar down from my elbow to my wrist from when they just kind of snippy snipped. They thought, oh, that'll free up the nerve. And um, yeah, none of it, I, I, none of it did anything except put me back in a significant pain spiral. Mm-hmm. And were you doing that work of learning how to, to manage your arms while you also were beginning to try to get pregnant? Was that simultaneous? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I I gotten just a couple glimmers on the horizon that maybe I wouldn't be disabled forever. Uh, and then I found out I was pregnant at the hospital getting ready to have a procedure that would help fix my arms. Because they go, because you know, what they do before surgeries, and they go, any chance you might be pregnant? And I was so sad. I was like, nope. And then they did a pregnancy test and came back, and there was just a whole bunch of nurses. And they were like, congratulations. And it, like, it was one of the happiest moments of my life. And so I, like, packed up all my stuff and went home. And then later that day, I started miscarrying. And it just, uh, I was so embarrassed. I was so embarrassed to have been so happy. Because I'd only known for two seconds. And I was so angry with myself for being so hopeful and for having skipped so far into the future and made all these plans. And, uh, and then it unraveled so fast. When you thought about feeling embarrassed, was it because you were so happy in front of this, like, medical team? Was it because you were happy with your husband? Why were, who were you embarrassed to have shown your, your happiness to? Embarrassment is, like, such an intense uh, grab bag for me. I just, I'll, it's like the bad Mary Poppins bag. I'll put everything <laughs> in it, you know, and I'll just, like... I can be embarrassed about everything, but I think it's just me. I fold in like a imploding star. 
After her miscarriage, Kate finally got a diagnosis for the source of her pain and weakness in her arms with the help of a physical therapist. Having a name for her joint condition didn't fix anything, though. And she had to reconsider some of her ideas about productivity and confront the pain that came with that. I was very desperate, so there was a lot of, God, help me, help me, help me. A lot of uh, anger that I couldn't, that I had lost so much control over my life. I, I lost a lot of important relationships during that period because I was, you know, I'd just gotten this. I'd gotten my first job is a dream job. No one had that job. Uh, Duke professor, 29 years old. I mean, I thought I've made it to a place that no one I know has ever gotten to. And, uh, and then almost immediately was unable to do most of the work required to keep that job. And people around me, there's some, some lovely people, but like, geez, I... I lost a lot of, like, people who used to be proud of me, mentors, people who'd helped get me that job were like, wow, what a, like, what a disappointment. And they, the fact that they said it, I immediately folded it into my heart, and I was like, I'm such a disappointment. I wish I had been more mad, but I had mostly just, like, I had fully folded it into, like, a deep horror and shame. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like aware that it's like it was a it was something you couldn't hide. You can't hide when your arms yeah. aren't working. <laughs> I had these like double arm casts. <laughs> it was really it was really quite something. And in the moment, like when you were in your arm casts, did you would you joke about it? Oh man, I was a song and dance number about yeah, all, yeah, smile and deflect, joke and deflect. Uh-huh. Nothing to see here. Everything's fine. I'd I'd wanted so much to, to just be an intellectual. I could just go, because having ideas has always been my escape. And it's like I'm the person who keeps my hand on the stove element forever. Just if, if I need to get, if I had to, I would do it. Then I was just the person who was always physically coming apart, and I, uh, I hated it. I hated it because it drew attention to my feeling like I was a failure to everybody, uh, and I couldn't control who had that information. But also because when I'm in pain, writing and thinking has always been the way I can just go on vacation. And so to have all three taken away was... I, I, my only coping skill was uh, not coping at all. It was just embarrassment. Hmm. You said keep your hand on the stove element if you were told to. You mean you would keep your hand on a hot stove for as long as somebody told you to keep it there? Yeah. Well, it's my long time ago. Um, my dad said the key to being a historian is the ability to sit on your bum for a million hours at a time. And that's kind of been my attitude about everything is like, I will outlast everything. I will sit forever. I will work forever. I have this like treadmill or die attitude about ideas. 
And so, yeah, it's what I picture when I'm when they do those pain tolerance tests and they interview people who can't experience pain and they're like, if we put your hand on a stove element, how would you feel? And I'd be like, nothing. I will win your stove element contest. Thank you very much. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. I would rather do everything by myself and hide my problems, but I haven't, like, I haven't been able to live like that for over a decade now. Like, all my problems are obvious. All my problems are expensive. <laughs> all my problems involve every single week I spend at least 15 hours doing awful health stuff. So, hmm. Is that right? Not, like, I, 15 hours. Yeah, it's, I, am a, I am a part-time job. Yeah. Huh. It's interesting to me that that's not visible, consuming no. you no. on Instagram, for example. Yeah, partly because I feel uh, like... Well, like, yeah, I, uh, it's funny too with, um, social media because in the moment in which I'm suffering, I would love it if everybody felt, I hate the lie that there's somewhere, that everybody out there is having a, beautiful, effortlessly perfect life. I hate it. But in the moment in which I'm suffering, all I can believe is that uh, it's it's going to go on forever. So I'm like waging my own thing all the time. And I can't like, uh, I can't even, I can't narrate it till it's over. You know, mm -hmm. I see people who like video, they're waiting for it, waiting for an MRI result. <laughs> I can't do it. I can't do it. I'm already just like struggling not to be devastated, you know, yeah. by the life I have. In addition to work and taking care of her health, that life includes raising a son with her husband. He's now in elementary school. He was a baby when Kate was diagnosed with cancer. I used to go to, I used to have to do chemo every Wednesday and I did it for two years. And Wednesdays were just purgatory. It was so awful. And you get hooked up to machines and you can feel really claustrophobic and you, you have to, you have to let it happen. I can control all kinds of things about, um, like the music I listen to and the people I talk to, but then you have to let your body be a part of things that you're not picking or you wouldn't pick. Like right before I get wheeled into surgery is one of the scariest moments. It's always one of the scariest moments and you can't try to crawl off the gurney when you're scared and they're putting a mask on you. But you have to just say, hey, I'm sorry to the nurse beside you. I know I just met you, but do you mind holding my hand? And then you just, then you got to let go. Do you do that with God? I guess I really run the gamut with my spiritual responses, which is, hey, you horrible monster. This really seems like a design flaw. <laughs> You're letting us all suffer like this. Explain hurricanes. There's a lot of that. Uh, um, when I'm in the middle of a huge pain wave, it's always just kind of like, save me, save me, save me, save me. Just be here. Please make this stop. It's just like simple pleading and also wanting to feel 
not alone. I also think, um, I feel so differently about God based on, you know, it's like being at a church service. I used to uh, travel around to interview megachurch pastors and, and attend healing rallies and miracle chasing experiences. And I would feel the inherent tragedy of it all if I was sitting with, uh, you know, in the wheelchair section with people who are desperate for a miracle. And then very different if I was sitting near the choir and I thought, man, this is, this is super uplifting. And all of it feels very true. There's so many notes to that scale. And, but almost none of it to me looks like resignation. Huh. Um, and is, is remission a word you use for your relationship to cancer now? You know, I haven't. I've been really always struggling with how to describe uh, having had chronic cancer for such a long time. And then I've had some good scans. And so I think every good scan, but they've been very up, they've been very mixed. And so I think that's why I've been, this is part of the breakdown of language after people are not just getting chemo. People like me have had immunotherapy where, you know, uh, the body is supposed to keep being able to fight cancer actively. So it's not like you just had cancer and then you cut it out. Your body is sort of an ongoing um, battleground. So... I haven't said remission, but I'm like, I'm getting there. Yeah. In your life, when you think about moments that are kind of like sitting close to the choir, you know, we've spent a lot of time talking about the particulars of of what it feels like when you're hurting. Um, and and when you are feel like relief from that or like joy, for you, is it rest? Is oh, it- it's so, no, I'm just like emotional. I'm emotional all the time about stuff that, sorry, gets me so upset. But like, oh, it's so, I get so overwhelmed. But like, I still cry when the plane lands because I I didn't think I'd get to take another trip. And I'm positive I'm the only person crying in like Pittsburgh. But like, (laughs) I'm just like, I do get really, like it bubbles up and I'm like, oh, well, Thank you. Like, I'm no longer reliable at family dinners because I can, right after the prayer, I'm like, okay, and I have to, like, excuse myself to go to the bathroom and, like, lean against a wall because I'm just like, didn't think this would happen. Because <laughs> so you're crying. Much. You're just, like, so I'm overcome. I'm so happy. Oh. I'm so happy, but it just looks like I'm losing my ever-living mind. But, yeah. I get uh, joy makes me super <laughs> joy makes me super emotional. <laughs> That's Kate Bowler. Her interview podcast is called Everything Happens, and her latest book, just out last month, is called The Lives We Actually Have: 100 Blessings for Imperfect Days. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios in New York. This episode was produced by Afi Yellowduke. The rest of our team is Liliana Maria Percy Ruiz, Zoe Azoulay, Lindsay Foster-Thomas, and Andrew Dunn. Our intern is Baze Hohen. 
The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. I'm on Instagram at AnnaSalePix, that's P-I-C-S, and the show is at DeathSexMoney on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you to Sing You Pan in New York for being a member of Death, Sex, and Money and supporting us with a monthly donation. Join Sing You and support what we do here by going to deathsexmoney.org slash donate. And as I said, Kate does interviews on her podcast, too. And I have to tell you, I do love conversations with fellow interviewers for funny observations like this. You know, I ask questions all the time, and I'm so jumpy. You're just like, la 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 la. (laughs) Now we'll walk to the edge of this, and I'll ask it. I love it. I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNY.